Hey, Gregory here. Before we get started, just a few things. If you're enjoying this latest season, please tell people you know. Maybe write a review. It really helps the show get the word out. And second, this next story, it's about addiction. How people talk about it to their friends and to their family. It's a topic that may be sensitive for some listeners. And we are not using the names of people in AA programs to respect that group's desire for their members to remain anonymous. For Julia Simon, this all started with the birthday cakes. The birthday cakes, they're a part of Alcoholics Anonymous in L.A. Specifically? Southern California, yes. So every year you're sober, you get a birthday cake to celebrate how many years of sobriety you have. They have a pianist who plays happy birthday when you get a birthday cake. This is my mom. It's just, you know, Hollywood, kiss, kiss on each cheek. I remember when I was in high school... She was going to AA, and she would invite my dad and my brother and me to go to these celebrations. There are lots of sober celebrities. They have a buffet. And the the rest of, of AA makes fun of Southern California for it. Mm. Yeah. So we went and gave her a birthday cake. And this was something that we did a few years. Um, and then, for me, it just became something that I resented doing. Mm. And I didn't exactly know why. You you didn't know why you resented it at the time? No, I didn't. So this is through my 20s. Right. Um, so were you living with her? I wasn't living it with her. But when I'd visit her, say my dad and I were watching TV downstairs, we'd hear things crashing above us. Mm. Um, is it just that my mom's really, really clumsy? Is it that she's really tired. We all thought that might be a medical condition, and we brought her to doctors. Julia couldn't figure it out. And then one night, her mom did go to the emergency room. Her dad brought her in after she was thrashing around in her sleep. The doctors did all these neurological tests. It took hours. But the only problem they found was the alcohol in her blood. The reality was that she was secretly drinking. For seven years, she was drinking and lying about it. So I I have to say thank you so much for talking to me in the first place. And it was about a year later that my mom and I sat down to talk about this. Where did it take place? It took place in my uncle's study. And I don't want you to share to squeak. (laughs) I brought my microphone. Yeah. I'm going to sit on the floor. Oh, okay. We ended up sitting on the floor because the chairs were squeaking. Maybe it'd be easier if there wasn't a microphone in my face. Oh, okay. Well, I. Yeah, I need this for me. Um, if. Okay. So, can. Okay, well. She said, okay. I'm not going to put anything out there without consulting you. I'm curious how it felt to receive the cake when you were drinking. It felt, um, I, you know, I met your dad auditioning for a play. There's a part of me that's an actress. I was acting sober. I have always kind of thought of my mom as a really terrible actress. You know, just like kind of a lot of like hand movements and like big facial expressions. And so I I made a joke about this. I was like, you've never been a very good actress. No I know, I know. That's why I gave it up a long time ago. I know, I know. Yeah. 
But then I was talking to her about the fact that when we'd go out to dinner and there'd be something on the menu that had rum in it, like some dessert. You know, if you accidentally had a bite, it was this whole production. And And you say, I'm not a good actress? Sorry. I mean, I I did that to look to look like I was sober, Julia. Yeah. So you really, oh, okay, you were pretty good then. <laughs> was, I mean, it was very disingenuous. But why didn't you tell anyone we could have helped you? Because it was more important to me to keep up the illusion that I was sober. I was committed to looking looking like I was okay. I guess I just, I guess, huh. Um, I'm just trying to see if I wrote a question that, that might help me phrase this. Um, I mean, did it bother you? Did it bother you that I didn't want to go to the cake things? I don't know, Julia. If, if, you, if it did, it's okay. I really don't know. My mom keeps saying that she doesn't know. Julia, I really... She doesn't remember. Because the alcohol impaired my memory. I'm trying to ask her basic questions, and I'm not hiding my impatience. Same thing. I don't know what what you're angry with me about. If you'd like to explode at me, go ahead. I'm not... I'm not... I'm not angry at specific things. I'm angry at the lying, which is just one humongous seven-year period you know i know that i lied to myself you lied to me i lied to everybody julia but i lied i lied to honesty is a big part of aa honesty with yourself honesty with others And as Julia struggled with her mom's lies, she started to feel frustrated at AA. She wondered if those birthday cakes, those public celebrations of success, had somehow trapped her mom in a place where she felt like she needed to lie. Now, this is not, I should say, how her mom sees it. She does not blame anyone in AA but herself. Looking back, Julia thinks she became a journalist in part because of a feeling that it was hard to get the full truth from her mom. And so, with her mom in recovery and her reporter's notebook in her hand, Julia started calling up rehab programs around the world to find a place that might have actually detected her mom's lies. This place. The first time we talked on the phone, you said something to me that I was like, oh, yeah, I definitely want to talk more to this guy. You were like, you know how Indonesians smile and they're not really smiling? Yeah. Yeah. Because the culture tells us we have to be polite. When we don't know the answer, then we have to smile. When we feel threatened, we have to smile. I mean, lying is part of the business. (laughs) I'm Gregory Warner, and this is Rough Translation, the show where we go to far-off places with stories that hit close to home. So much of the way we in the U.S. talk about addiction treatment starts with coming clean about your past. Admitting you have a problem is the first step to solving the problem. So Julia Simon wanted to know, what might addiction treatment look like in a place where the culture is telling you to put a rosy face on things? Today, she takes us to Indonesia to seek out some answers for her American mom. This message comes from NPR sponsor Wix.com. Rough Translation connects listeners to untold stories from around the world. 
With Wix, create your own professional website to connect your own stories. Choose a template you love and customize it with your own text, images, and videos. With hundreds of intuitive design features, you can tell your story or someone else's exactly the way you want. Get started now by going to Wix.com. That's wix.com slash translation to get 10% off. 1965, a darkened street corner in Selma, Alabama, and a murder. A new podcast exposes the lies that kept this murder from being solved. And explores memory, myth, and accountability for a crime at the heart of the civil rights movement. From NPR, White Lies. Listen and subscribe now. We're back with Rough Translation. And if we started this story with Julia's mom in L.A. lying to make herself look like she was fine, the first person Julia is going to introduce us to in Indonesia is someone whose whole neighborhood is conspiring to lie for him. Redwan is addicted to heroin. He's been in and out of jail. He's HIV positive. He tells me he slept on train tracks. But before any of this, Redwan was a kid growing up in the Indonesian capital of Jakarta. So we're walking down a very skinny street and there are all these flags, a bunch of birds in cages. Oh, another motorbike these narrow, narrow streets. They actually call them Jalan Tikus, which means street of the mouse. Everybody's very close together. Oh, they live in here? Hello. Kasi. Ridwan's family lived in houses side by side, six brothers and sisters. Ridwan's big sister, Aini, says when Ridwan was a kid, he was always with a book. He was a nerd. Um, you said he was very smart. And then he entered middle school. She says that's when he went a wild way. When Redwan was a teenager, he went to what he calls a prison for children, like juvie. But then he'd get home leave. Every time I got a free time to go back to my home with with my mother, my uh, neighbors always asking me, like, how's your school? How is your studying going, the neighbors would ask. How's your uh, pelajaran di pesantren? In the pesantren, your boarding school. Jadi memang saya ngeliat ada... So I realized that, wow, my mother tried to keep secret what happened about me. Yeah. Why? Mengapa? Di lingkungan saya, saya salah satu. My family, my grandfather, is a role model in my neighborhood. Ridwan's grandfather was an Islamic scholar. His father was a leader at their local mosque. So part of their house is the mosque. It's like you come in with green and carpets. That's why uh, my uh, neighborhood tried to keep it secretly. They're afraid they humiliate my my father and grandfather. You're saying they actually knew? Everybody noticed it. Ridwan's neighborhood is kind of known for all these printing shops. And when Ridwan's addiction got worse, 
Ridwan was stealing the equipment from them. Kalau saya sakal tuh saya mencuri plat. I sell it to someone else and the money I use it to buy a drugs. Saya kiloin. And one day the owners of, of the printing agency come to my my home. The owners gathered to talk to his dad. Orang datang ke rumah saya menemui bapak saya. They told my father uh, if your son uh, need some money, why don't he just work with me? I can give him a job. So even when you stole from them, they didn't they didn't say it. <laughs> I'm translating and he's saying Everything has to look good. Everything yeah. has to look like everything's okay. Yeah. In Indonesia, there's this one word that captures this idea. It's uh, more like uh, malu. The word is malu. Like, uh, if you don't want to feel ashamed, stay away from trouble. There are a lot of definitions for the Indonesian word malu. But malu, the word malu also means shy, doesn't it? My interpreter, no, Barman, and I would go back and forth about it. Wait, malu, malu, and malu are different words? There are even instructional videos aimed at Western business people on how to deal with malu culture. Conflict avoidance. Most Indonesians value maintaining the appearance of harmony at all costs. Saying yes when they mean no. On Java, which is the most populous island in the world, you have all these different languages and ethnicities and religions. This is extremely useful, you know? Like, you can keep things chill with Malu. When I lived in Indonesia, I felt like Malu was sort of this glue that helps stick people together, especially living in tight quarters. But Redwan says when it came to his addiction, he found Malu confusing. Jadi, itu orang tidak bercerita kalau saya nyuri apa. <laughs> he uses a word bingung that means confused, bewildered, at sea. Because it almost didn't seem to matter to people if he was sober or not, as long as he pretended to be sober. Ridwan and his family were not alone in this. Actually, around the time that he was struggling in the 90s, there was a flood of drugs into Indonesia from different parts of Southeast Asia. And the country's response was mostly either mental hospitals or jail. Indonesia still has some of the harshest drug policies in the world, death sentences for dealing or producing drugs. And at first, one of the only places that offered anything like rehab was a program founded by Joyce Jelani Gordon. She translated the Big Blue Book of AA into Indonesian. Pencerahan. Pencerahan spiritual. And she struggled to interpret some of the Christian concepts of 12 steps for Indonesia's Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists. I didn't want uh, the 12 steps to be too much of a certain, uh, certain uh, religion. She and her husband, an American, David Gordon, felt like they were doing something new in Indonesia, encouraging people to speak openly and honestly about their addiction. David, as an addict, can, can say, you know, I'm an addict, so there's no point in lying with us. At that time, there was only one government recovery center in the whole country. So when people like Ridwan landed in Joyce and David's program with its confessional approach, that was also confusing and bewildering. We call it American culture. Sam Nugraha is the guy I called up in Indonesia before my trip, and he went to Joyce and David's program. Because it's very American when people 
saying out loud their feelings to strangers. He still remembers the shock of going to his first group meeting. They always introduced themselves by telling, Hi, my name is X and I'm an addict. And the, and the group immediately responded, Hi, X. Like, what's going on? <laughs> was this just like kind of mind-boggling to yeah, just... Absolutely. I was scared, to be honest, because it's... It's twisting everything that you believe. In our culture, we are not supposed to expose our shortcomings to other people. We are not supposed to tell our, our feelings. All his life, Sam had been taught that his individual pain, it's not so important to talk about. Just man up. <laughs> and this guy tells him. Uh, you are as sick as your secrets. You're as sick uh, as your secrets. Yeah. So Sam finally stands up in one of the meetings says, hi, I'm Sam. They say, hi, Sam. It felt good to say it out loud. And Sam embraced this approach. He made it through the 12 steps. He graduated from client to peer counselor. Looking back, Sam does remember some things that didn't work. Like this one time he told this painful story about his father. The other Indonesians in the group they started taking what Sam said in the meetings and throwing it back at him. When it's shared, that means it's become public uh, <laughs> domain. Sometimes they use that when they talk to me. Like you have dad issues, something like that. He had daddy issues. The concept of group therapy is new with, with our culture. It broke the rules about Malu, these rules about staying discreet. It's, it's quite difficult to practice sharing honesty, open mind, and willingness, you know, those things, uh, those slogans they have in 12 steps. It's really difficult. Yeah. That's when I think, yeah, the traditions, the regulations of the meeting is confidentiality, but in practice, it's up to the people who hear the stories. It was when Sam was working as a counselor that he really started questioning the program. He had this one client who did everything he was supposed to do. When he relapsed, he admitted it, he came back, he talked about his flaws, and Sam would try to help him. By help means to get him out of drugs. That's what I have in my thought. And he did help him. The guy graduated the program, he went out into the world, and then he overdosed. And that's actually give me, get me thinking what was wrong. I mean, what can prevent him from dying? Sam wondered, what if preventing people from dying was more important than keeping them honest and sober? So Sam started his own program with a different approach to sobriety and a different approach to lying. This message comes from NPR sponsor Smile Direct Club. How long does it take to get a lifetime of confidence? You can get a smile you'll love in about six months with Smile Direct Club. Smile Direct Club straightens your teeth with invisible aligners sent directly to you. Go online and book a free 3D scan at one of their smile shops or order an at-home impression kit. They'll email a preview of your new smile. Get $100 off at smiledirectclub.com podcast. Offer code ROUGH100. 
Support also comes from Delta. Delta flies to 300 cities around the world. That's 300 cities where many people do the same things you do. That's 300 cities where people in those 300 cities think they're the only ones who know about that one place. And 300 cities where people miss someone in one of Delta's other 299 cities. Delta isn't flying to 300 cities merely to bring people together, but to show that we're not that far apart in the first place. Delta, keep climbing. If you need to be reminded that we're all more connected than we realize, get the StoryCorps podcast and restore your faith in humanity. Uninterrupted conversations between real people about the things that matter most. And this season, in honor of the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising, we're highlighting voices of LGBTQ people across America. Stories from those who lived before Stonewall to today. Episodes are available every Tuesday. so beautiful. Like you can see the mountains and it's... So Sam's program is called Ruma Singa Pekka. Their motto is, when the world rejects you, come here. The rehab is run out of this peach-colored house in the mountains of Bogor, an hour south of Jakarta. Who are these dogs? These are also addicts. (laughs) What are they addicted to? Uh, Human, I suppose. These are the grandmas. Some clients do cognitive behavioral therapy, others methadone, there's job training. We do not decide what's best for our clients. The clients have to decide uh, what's best for them. Do some of them keep keep doing heroin just like once a week or something? Uh, yeah, some, some of them are still using. They can't use on the premises, but Sam does allow patients to use drugs or drink alcohol while still in the program. It's the first rehab like this in Indonesia, but it's part of this school of thought called harm reduction. Harm reduction can mean lots of different things. It can mean giving people clean needles to do drugs. It can mean prenatal clinics designed for people addicted to drugs, or even in some places, supplying you with small amounts of the drugs that you're addicted to. And these programs do provoke strong reactions. When Sam's clinic opened up, his neighbors attacked him for his approach. You just keep people using drugs. You're a new dealer in town. You're a new dealer in town? I'm a new drug dealer in town, that's what he said. You're just, you know, helping people to keep using drugs. The way Sam sees it, the way a lot of harm reduction people see it, addiction is a disease like diabetes or anything else. There is a change in the brain structures, even the brain's function. You know, part of, well, maybe the main reason why I'm interested in addiction is because of my mom. I told um, Sam about my mom, how she was in AA and sober, but then how she started drinking again and lied about it. Like, how, how do you see that? It's very humane. I mean, human are fragile, right? Do you think AA is forgiving enough to people who are sober for 10 years and then suddenly are back to square one? I think the program, yeah. But the yeah. people, it's de- depend depend on the group of that people. People who are in the group could think like, oh, he's a loser. You know, many people feel ashamed when they slip, they use again, and then they don't want to admit because it gives that feelings of I'm being a failure. 
You should be like, I still need more help. But why, why did the 12-step program not work for you? Remember Red One, the guy who grew up on those narrow streets, whose neighbors lied on his behalf? When I asked him about his experience in AA, why did it not work? Saya sendiri yang tidak yang tidak menjalankan aturan-aturan program sehingga He doesn't blame AA. He says he's the one who failed the program. I myself who the one didn't follow the rules. I always try to not following what my mentor said to me. In the end he felt he couldn't be honest with his sponsor, just like my mom. Now Ridwan's in Sam's program. My ultimate goal to be a clean person. Ridwan's coming to him with feelings of failure and shame. Guilt to myself. And Sam needs to get past all that in order to reach him as a client. Ridwan says Sam once saw one of his photos on Instagram. A photo of him with a girl. Sam look at it and Sam asked me is that your girlfriend I said no it's not my girlfriend actually it's my girlfriend she is my girlfriend but I would rather keep it secretly he lied he thought Sam would tell him to break up with his girlfriend because there are rules about relationships and recovery so you lied to him uh, did he know you were lying <laughs> he knew you think he knew Ridwan says Sam tells his clients, if you start with a lie, you're stuck with it. But when Sam says this stuff, he's gentle about it. Of course. <laughs> That's part of our job. He calls it teasing. Here in Pekka is, everybody knows when you are lying to other person. They call you, you are playing a game. If you start playing, if you start the game, you are the one who going to finish the game. Sam is like, okay, I'll play the game with you. And whenever you want to end it, I'm here. A few months after I went to Indonesia, I called up Sam to hear how he was doing. Okay, so I'm, I'm recording. Is Ridwan still with you? No, he's not. He told me Ridwan was back to using drugs. He was back to his old business. I heard that. I think he's might be in trouble again. Ugh. Oh, oh no. Do you do who, where did you hear that from? A part of me hoped, as the daughter of an alcoholic, that maybe Sam did have the solution. That maybe in the mountains of Java. I'd find a program that just figured it all out. It's not like that. When it comes to relapse, Sam's results are pretty much the same as everywhere else. Absolutely, I mean... Uh, but he measures not on whether people get sober, but on their quality of life. Their opinion about their lives. Whether they're holding down jobs, whether they're healthy, how their relationships are going. 26 questions. Not only is Sam's program growing, but he's consulting with the Indonesian government. He's doing trainings across the Asia-Pacific region. When I got back to the U.S., I thought a lot about what I learned from Sam. Of course, I wanted my mom to have a program like Sam's. And in fact, she's seeking different kinds of help now. She's in a relapse prevention program. She's learning about the science of her addiction. She's taking a low dose of an antidepressant. 
But I realized there was something I learned from Sam that wasn't even about my mom. It was more about what I could do. A new way to talk to her. Uh, so, so yeah, so, so basically with, with uh, Sam, first I wanted to tell her about Malu. People want everything to look okay. Yeah, do you have a thought? I, well, in certain families, it's also a Malu culture. My mom basically jumped in and was like, oh, yes, yes, I know this culture. Do you think a little bit like your family? Right, no, everything was fine. <laughs> um, and I'm coming back, giving her a book report. And she's like, yeah, I know. And then I told her what Sam's doing with Malu, this way of talking to people. Not be like, you're lying to me. Like, I know that you repeated a lie, but kind of, um, you're shaking your head. Rather than confront them about being dishonest, let them kind of weave their tale and being patient with them to, to help them understand what's going to happen if you tell the truth. It's not it's going to help you. It's not going to hurt you. I am not going to judge you. That's how I, I, he probably gains their trust so that they can be honest. Is that, is that true? Yeah, you nailed it. So I'm wondering if anyone did that for you. No, I, I, uh, sadly, I, no one, no one did. My mom's still in AA. She won't miss a meeting. She feels like she really needs that support to stay on track. But now she realizes that some of the AA teachings don't work for her. There's a prayer about character defects. Do you want to hear that, Courtney? Sure. (laughs) My creator, I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. You know, it was helpful till it wasn't helpful anymore. Yeah. They felt a little punishing. It feels, especially when we talk about character defects, it feels like that's all I am. Like, there's a character in Peanuts, Pigpen, and you never really saw him. It was just um, like a giant tumbleweed of dust, and Pigpen was underneath there, and... Saying that prayer, you know, take away my, you know, my character defects, that it felt like I am such a flawed human being. A friend of mine from Indonesia told me that Malu is being afraid to take off your mask. Even though everyone knows what's underneath it, you still don't take it off. And my mom has this instinct to keep her mask on, even with me. And um, how do you feel knowing that? You, no, no, you know what? Actually, it's actually, it's a relief, really. Really? I mean, I'm not going to say I don't have any more anger. I still do have anger. Mm-hmm. Like, I asked her about that moment where I'm like, you lied to me. Yeah. 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 In the interview, I, I said you were lying to me, and you said you were lying to everyone. But, you know, you were lying to me. I know you were lying to everyone, but you were lying to me. And I'm not quite over it. (laughs) Whatever I can do to make that better, I would, Julia. I'm deeply 
sorry. All I can say is that I was lying to myself very deeply. Um, can I talk to you a little bit about something that I learned in my relapse prevention sure. group? Yeah. Well, we were talking about the relapse cycle. And, you know, um, last time she started telling me about her say, classes and say, kind of changing the conversation from the questions that I was trying to engage her with, you could hear the impatience in my voice. I was trying to confront her. And this time... I was in the grips of a disease. I just listened. And it, that can sound like... Maybe that's sounding like a cop-out to you. I That I was lying to continue my disease, to continue my right to drink. And I don't... I don't know how to apologize for that. That's okay. I think the thing that's... it's I hear you. I really do hear you. Julie. I do hear you. <laughs> you know what? Take as long as you need. No, but you know what? I really do hear you. I, I'm, I'm working on, on getting worry. to it. No, I feel it. I feel you're <laughs> working hard. I really feel Good. <laughs> Today's show was produced by Jess Jang. Marianne McCune is our editor. And thanks to all of those who lent their ears and their minds to this episode. Laura Starczewski, Lou Olkowski, Sally Helm, Noel King, Yoe Shaw, Michael May, Sana Krasikov, Prodita Sabarini, and Nadia Woodhouse. Thanks also to interpreter Barman Simatupang, Siti Farhana, Ferry Kamil, Laurel McLaurin, Gavin Bart, Anna Lemke, Dan Chikaroni, Danielle Fuster-Marti, Benjamin Chin, Margaret Scott, Anastasia Tsiolkas, Megan Reed, Bobby Allen, and Aubrey Belford. The Rough Translation High Council is Neil Carruth, Will Dobson, and Anya Grunman. Jane Gilvin fact-checked this episode. Greta Pinninger and Katie Doggart helped with research. Mastering by Isaac Rodriguez. John Ellis composed music for our show. Mike Cruz scored the episode. Drop us your thoughts or your stories at roughtranslation.npr.org or find us on Twitter at Roughly. I'm Gregory Warner. Back in two weeks with more Rough Translation.